0: Kathleen Hall said, in every single thing you do, you're choosing a direction. Your life is a product of choices. If you think about all the choices that you make in a single day and then consider the fact that there are 7 billion people on this earth right now, that's a lot of different choices being made by a lot of different people all over the world every moment of every day. And yet, as many of us as there are, and as different as we all are, right, from, uh, from person to person, from culture to culture, from age to age, from one end of the earth to the other, as different as we are, there's one choice common to all of mankind, one choice that every one of us has to make at some point in our lives, a choice that will not only affect every aspect of your life thereafter, but also the lives of those you happen to be in relationship with. And of course... If you've been in church for any length of time, then you know that choice is to either follow Jesus Christ or to follow something else. And just to be clear, every single one of us is following something. We are, whether we're willing to admit it or not. We all have something that drives us, that motivates us, that inspires us, something that captivates us, something that demands our focus and loyalty above everything else. Every single one of us is following something. Sadly, in the end, most choose to follow something other than Jesus, according to Jesus, who said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide. The way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few, Matthew 7, 13, and 14. So what is it that the majority of people choose to follow if not Jesus? Well, the, honest, uh, the honest answer is themselves. Most people choose to follow self instead of following Christ. In fact, one of the most effective lies ever perpetrated against God's people throughout history has been the idea that as long as you believe in God, that means he is your God. But that's not what the Bible says. James, the brother of Jesus, said, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. James 2.19. By the way, when he said that, James was pointing the Jewish believers in God, the Jewish Christians at the time. He was pointing them back to the Shema. It's a Jewish creed in Deuteronomy 6.4, which stresses the importance of monotheism, this belief that there's only one true God, as opposed to the Canaanites they were living among who were polytheistic, which meant they believed in many gods. So James was saying, listen, guys. You can believe that there's only one God. And you can believe that that God is Jesus Christ, which is good. But you understand, the demons believe that too. So obviously, believing that Jesus Christ is God, and Jesus Christ actually being your God, are two different things. Which is why when Jesus called his disciples, by the way, he didn't say to them, hey, come have a personal relationship with me. Or, hey, stranger, repeat this prayer after me, and then all of a sudden you'll have a personal relationship with me. No, Jesus never said that. Yet one after another, after another, after another, he walked up to total strangers and he said to them, come follow me. Why? because you cannot have a relationship with Jesus if you're not following Jesus. Okay, simply believing in God does not mean that He is your God. The demons believe that Jesus is God. The difference is they don't follow Him. And so at the end of the day, what it boils down to is, who are you following? Because listen, whoever it is you're following, That is your God. Who are you following? And again, the answer to that question for most people, if we're being honest, is myself. And I hate to say it, but that's true of many people who profess to be Christians. It's not that we don't believe in Jesus. We just choose not to follow him. And I say that in part because over the last 25 years in ministry, I've met with a lot of professing believers who have entered into Uh, Adulterous relationships or who refuse to contribute their time and their talent or their money to the church to the body of Christ or people who chase after addictions or who pursue a career at the expense of their families and on and on and on the list goes. But listen, in, in those 25 years, I have never heard one of those professing believers, when I ask them about their faith in Christ, I've never had even one of them ever say to me, the reason I'm pursuing this relationship outside of my marriage, or the reason I don't give to the church, or the reason for this addiction, or this obsession with my career, or whatever it is, the reason is because I don't believe in Jesus anymore. I've never heard that yet. Now, in every single case, they continue to profess faith in Christ while consciously choosing to pursue other paths in life that undeniably, decidedly lead them away from Christ. And that's just it, you see. Because generally speaking, wayward Christians aren't making the choice to not believe in Christ. They're simply choosing not to follow Him. And that's a very dangerous place for you and I to be. We have no more powerful or tragic example of this, by the way, than a man named Saul, a man who was chosen by God to become the king of Israel, a man with all of the talent. He had all of the purpose, all of the potential and popularity that anyone could ever hope for in their life. He was a man who believed in God, but he chose not to follow him. And the consequences of that choice not only affected his life profoundly, but it affected the lives of all those he happened to be in relationship as well, as we're going to see as we finish working our way through 1 Samuel today. By the way, I believe I looked this up, and today is exactly one year from the day we started this book. So we're finishing it today, 1 Samuel, and this is a story, listen. This is a story that should give every one of us professing believers reason to pause and take a long, hard, and honest look at not only what we believe, but what we follow. Let's pick the story up where we left off last time, then at 1 Samuel chapter 31. We'll begin with verses 1 through 7. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, meaning someone shot Saul with an arrow. He was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. When the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled and the Philistines came and lived in them. So this story chronologically picks up right after chapter 28, where you'll remember if you were here that Saul secretly sought out a witch, a medium at Endor on the eve of battle with the Philistines in order to conjure up the prophet Samuel's spirit from the dead so that he could tell Saul what he should do in regard to this imminent attack from the Philistines. And so this chapter opens just hours after that fateful meeting between Saul and that witch at Endor, which resulted in Samuel's spirit prophesying Saul's death in battle the next day, which, of course, we find the fulfillment of right here in chapter 31, as we just read, where the Philistines leave their camp at Shunem and attack the Israelite army who were on Mount Gilboa, according to chapter 28, verse 4, and also here in verse 1. And in the process... Saul is mortally wounded by a Philistine archer, even as his three oldest sons, including Jonathan, are killed in battle. And knowing he's not going to make it out of this one alive, Saul tells his armor bearer to run him through. Because Saul was well aware, by the way, Uh, of ancient Near Eastern customs regarding the treatment of mortally wounded enemy soldiers on the battlefield, uh, especially officers and high-ranking officers. He he knows he's not going to make it, and he knows what's about to happen to him, um, which included stripping the victim naked, uh, the mutilation of their genitalia, and then parading them around, all while alive, around the city until ultimately decapitation and the public display of their body. And so obviously, hoping to avoid that fate, Saul chooses the lesser of two evils, and he tells his armor bearer to put him out of his misery. But the armor bearer, having so much reverence and honor for the one anointed by God to lead them, he refuses to do that. And so Saul finishes the job himself by falling on his sword. And while all of this is going on, Saul and his sons being killed, the Israelite army being overrun and massacred by the Philistines, the Israelites from the other side of the valley, from the hill of Morah, the hills also on the north side of the valley of Jezreel, and even the high vantage points east of the Jordan. They're all watching this horror unfold. And so they abandon the cities of Issachar and Manasseh, and the Philistines move in and take up permanent residence. So much destruction. So much death, so much devastation to the people of God, many of whom, like Jonathan, were deeply faithful and God-fearing people. Yet they died needlessly. Many lost their homes, were driven out of the land that God had given them, and now they're suffering to no fault of their own. So much widespread misery for the Israelites, and every single bit of it can be traced directly back to the choices of one man. Remember, back in chapter 9, verse 16, Saul was prophesied to be the one who would save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And in the beginning, that's exactly what he did. We'll talk about that next. Because at the start, Saul was faithful. He was a God-fearing leader. Chapter 10 says that the Spirit of God came upon him, upon Saul, mightily, and he prophesied and became a different man. Saul believed in God. And for a time, he followed God. And although he never stopped believing in God, which is clear based on how hard he tried to communicate with God throughout his life, even when God stopped answering because of Saul's disobedience, but there's no doubt that Saul believed in God right up to the bitter end. The problem is not that Saul didn't believe in God. The problem is he stopped following God. Because along the way, Saul became more interested in what he wanted for his life than what God wanted for his life. And the worst part is that choice to stop following God didn't just affect Saul. No, it deeply affected everyone he happened to be in relationship with. All the people in his care and under his command were profoundly affected by Saul's choice to follow his own will instead of God's. And here's the thing. It's no different for us today because we don't make choices in a vacuum. No matter how independent of others you may think your life choices are, the fact is wherever you're going, you're taking other people with you. You understand that? Wherever you're going, you're taking other people with you. Whatever direction your life is going in right now, you are leading people there with you, whether you mean to or not. Why? Because every significant decision that you make affects someone else. We don't make decisions in a vacuum. And so if your life is on a destructive path, whether you realize it or not, you are dragging other people down that path behind you. People whose lives are tethered to yours and are being affected by the choices you think you're only making for yourself. It's one of the reasons it's so important that you not only believe in Jesus Christ, but that you are actually following him because like it or not, there are people following you. People you may not even be aware of. Verse six, thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. Saul led himself, his armor bearer, his three oldest sons, and his entire army to an early grave and the people of Issachar and Manasseh to poverty and homelessness. All because Saul was more interested in what he wanted for his life than what God wanted for his life, no matter who he was responsible to lead or to care for. And I'm telling you, If you are not actually following Jesus Christ in your life right now, there are other people who are also not following Him because they're following you. By the way, just in case you're thinking, well, pastor, nobody should be following me. They should just follow Jesus and leave me out of it. That sounds nice, except the Apostle Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. First Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11.1. We are supposed to have other people following us as we follow Christ. There's actually a word for that in the Bible. It's called discipleship. This is part of the weight, the responsibility of being a Christian, the fact that your life and how you live it, it's not just about you. It's about all those who happen to be a part of your life, those who God put in your life so that you could lead them to Christ. But listen, you cannot lead anyone to a place you're not going. You cannot lead anyone to a place you're not going, right? You can tell someone about your favorite restaurant, but if you say to them, follow me there, and then you drive your car to the local uh, car dealership, right? They're not going to experience the great meal you just told them about. You can tell someone all about Jesus and how much you believe in Him, but that's not the same thing as leading them to Jesus. And You can't lead anyone to Jesus if you're not following Him yourself. You can't. And I'm telling you guys, we're living in a pivotal time in history, a time where there are people all around us like never before, at least not in our lifetime, who are angry, afraid, and fed up with what's happening in the world. And listen, they don't just need people who are willing to tell them about Jesus. They need people who are willing to lead them to Jesus. But you cannot lead anyone to Jesus if you're not following Jesus. And so look, uh, if your profession of faith is strong, but your walk with Jesus isn't, then the people you have influence with will profess Christ and follow something else, just like you. And yes, by the way, we are saved by God's grace through our faith, not by works. That's absolutely true. That is true. But faith without works is what? It's dead faith. According to James, the brother of Jesus, the sign of a true believer is someone who actually walks with Jesus. It's what signifies that we are saved. This is why we have to be, listen. Uh, This is why we have to be careful about how we raise our hands in church and recite prayers at altar calls. That's not a bad thing, and we do it here all the time. It's a good thing. Making that kind of response to the Word of God and to the conviction of the Holy Spirit is good, and it is needed. That's why we do it. But listen, when someone asks me how many people got saved in a church service, to be honest, I'm a little reticent to tell them how many people raised their hands that day because I'd rather wait a few weeks and see if anything is accurate changed in their lives right because although works don't save us and they don't but look you show me someone who's truly been saved and I will show you someone whose life doesn't look the same as it did before so here's a good question for you and I to consider today if tomorrow you decided that you didn't believe in Jesus anymore would your life look any different then than it does today? If your life, if you decided tomorrow, you didn't believe in Jesus, would your life look any different tomorrow than it does today? When you say you believe in Jesus, would the people you happen to be in relationship, would they notice an undeniable difference in the way you behave, the way you talk, what you talk about, the choices you make, the places you go, the things you do tomorrow without believing in Jesus compared to your life today while you say you do believe in Jesus? Would there be an undeniable difference or would your life without faith tomorrow look exactly like your life does today with your faith? Because I'm I'm telling you, without Jesus, your life cannot look the same as it does with Jesus. Without Jesus, there's no remission of sins. Without Jesus, there's no victory over death. Without Jesus, there's no salvation from the wrath of God. Without Jesus, there's no help for today. Without Jesus, there's no hope for tomorrow. Without Jesus, there's no light for this world, listen, without Jesus, there is no plan for your life. Without Jesus, there's no rest for your soul. Without Jesus, there's no peace in troubled times. Without Jesus, there's no purpose for humanity. Without Jesus, there is no eternal life. Without Jesus, we have nothing, are nothing, accomplish nothing, and become nothing. Because without Jesus, we're lost forever. There is no way Your life can be the same without Christ as it is with Christ. Unless you're not actually following him. And remember, whatever it is that you are following, you're taking other people there with you. Timothy Keller writes, Jesus says, I want you to follow me so fully so intensely, so enduringly, that all other attachments in your life look weak by comparison. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 8 to the end of the chapter. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. So the battle's over. The Israelites are soundly defeated and the king and his men are dead. This is a dark day. For Israel, and to make matters worse, the Philistines take Saul's body. They desecrate it, decapitate it. Then they hang his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, one of their pagan gods. And according to uh, 1 Chronicles 10:10, 10, 10, by the way, they fasten his head to the temple of Dagon, another pagan god, whose own head was decapitated back in chapter five when the Philistines placed the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of Dagon. So (laughs) it's probably not a coincidence here that the Philistines put Saul's head in the same temple where the statue of their own god lost his head in the presence of the ark some time ago. And then finally, they impale Saul's headless body and the bodies of his sons on the city wall of beth to dishonor them and put them on display for all the people. Now, look, as bad of a king as Saul was, and if you've been through this book with us, you know He was a pretty bad king. You'd think that no one would care much what had been done with his headless body after the battle. But that's not the case at all. In fact, a group of valiant men from Jabesh-Gilead risked their lives on a very difficult mission. It was 15 miles, one way on foot at night, crossing the Jordan River, which in and of itself during the daytime was hard to do, into Philistine territory to recover Saul and his son's bodies, bringing them all the way back at night across the river for a proper burial to honor them in their memory under the tamarisk tree, which was a sacred site for the Israelites. Why in the world would they do that? Why bother risking life and limb for Saul, who had so badly misled God's people, which ended in their near total destruction? Well, it's because the men of Jabesh Gilead never forgot the time early in Saul's reign before he became caught up with himself when he not only believed in God, but there was a time when he was following God with all of his heart and soul. And You may remember from chapter 11 where Saul mustered 300,000 Israelite men. The Ammonites were coming against Jabesh Gilead. They were scared to death. All of Israel was afraid of the Ammonites. And Saul took an ox and cut it up into pieces and shipped it out to all of the tribes of Israel and said, If you don't come down as one man and fight with me and defend the men of Jabesh Gilead, so will be your oxen. And so they come down, 300,000 Israelite men, and Saul leads them fearlessly and fiercely into battle to fight for the people of Jabesh Gilead. And ultimately he rescues them from the Ammonites, and they never forgot it because the people who were following Saul at the time could clearly see that Saul was following God. And it changed their lives forever, clearly. It changed their lives as they're now, all these years later, despite all of Saul's bad choices and disobedience to God, they're still willing to put their own lives on the line in order to honor Saul in death because of the time he chose to honor God and the people of Jabesh Gilead in life. It's amazing the effect it had on these people, and it's the same for us today. Okay, wherever you're going, you're taking other people with you, which means when you're following Christ, you are leading others to him. Right? It's inevitable. If people are following you and you're following Jesus, you're going to lead them to him. Of course, that's what we've been talking about, uh, certainly at a high level today. And so listen, for the rest of our time here this morning, I'm going to be very specific about one of the ways we follow Jesus that leads others directly to him and to his gospel. Because in two weeks from today... On Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, we're going to be baptizing some of you in water right here in the sanctuary. That was going to be just after the second service, uh, but probably now it's going to be after both services. We already have, I think, 19 or 20 people signed up, and we haven't even talked about it publicly until now. There will surely be more people after this service and from our Solutions Recovery Campus in downtown Greenville. But listen, there is no more... A profoundly descriptive way to publicly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and its work in your life than water baptism. That's a fact. There's no more intentional or powerful way for you to follow Jesus Christ in your life than to be baptized in water. Did you hear that? There is no more intentional or powerful way for you to follow Jesus Christ in your life than to be baptized in water. You know why? Because that's what Jesus did. And he commanded us to do it as well, which means you're not only being obedient to his word when you're baptized in water, but you're actually following in his footsteps when you do the same. Okay, in the gospel, according to Matthew, when Jesus comes to John the Baptist to be baptized, John the Baptist says, hey, wait a minute, Jesus. You want me to do what? You want me to baptize you? Here's the quote. He says, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replies, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us. Why? To fulfill all righteousness. Matthew 3, 14 and 15. In other words, if we're going to do what is right, what must be done, then you have to baptize me. Jesus has to be baptized. Think about that for just a minute. Because there are many Christians today who claim they not only believe in but follow Jesus Christ, yet they don't think they need to be baptized in water. I'm just telling you, if Jesus had to be baptized in water, I'm pretty sure you need to be baptized in water. Okay, When Jesus said that to John, he was saying that in this baptism by John, Jesus would be fulfilling yet another aspect of all that was required by God of the Messiah, including all that was prophesied throughout the Old Testament about him, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his fulfillment of the law, and on and on. There there wasn't one single step in God's redemptive plan for this world that could be left out if Jesus was the true Messiah. And so by this baptism, Jesus was linking himself to, he was identifying himself with the Old Testament prophecies about him. He was also identifying himself with John's own ministry, which was preparing the way for the Messiah's coming. And although Jesus was sinless in this baptism, he was identifying himself with the sinful human race that he came to save, which also meant that Jesus' baptism testified publicly to his true identity as the Messiah, which is confirmed, of course, as he's raised up out of the water and the heavens were open to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, "'This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased.'" Matthew three sixteen and 17. And so in that act of water baptism, Jesus' public ministry is inaugurated and the testimony as to his true identity as the Messiah is confirmed. Can you begin to see the profound significance, the overwhelming importance that water baptism has in the life of Christ and, of course, in our ability to identify our lives with His? It's it's why, by the way, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus includes water baptism in the Great Commission to His followers then and today. We talk about the Great Commission, making disciples all the time. We rarely pause to talk about this part of it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Go therefore, he's talking to you, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, which includes water, baptism, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. According to Jesus Water baptism is inextricably linked to the work of evangelism and discipleship. It is inseparable. They are part and parcel of the same work. And interestingly, throughout the rest of the New Testament, that is precisely what we see when people receive the gospel of Christ. There's a simultaneous response of repentance and baptism. Why? Because Jesus commanded all of those things to happen as a part of the same work. And yet somehow today we've separated water baptism as this vaguely related and even optional religious ceremony that we may or may not get around to at some point in our walk with Christ. How dead wrong we are. Listen, in nearly every instance in Scripture, water baptism was the first thing a Christian did after responding in faith to the gospel. That's how important they understood it to be. That's how central to their faith and testimony in following Christ and in leading others to Him that it was. Not for salvation. You understand, water baptism doesn't save us. Again, we're saved by grace through faith alone, period, end of sentence, full stop. That's it. We're saved by grace through faith alone. But if you're wondering if it's a sin for Christians to not be water baptized, let me just be clear, because the answer is a resounding yes. It is absolutely a sin to refuse to be water baptized if you're a Christian. Why? Because Jesus not only modeled it, he commanded that we do it. Why? Because of what it identifies us with and what it testifies to in our lives. And yet I'm not sure we truly grasp the full weight of that today. The fact that water baptism is far, far more than a a Christian ritual or a a religious graduation ceremony. Water baptism for us today is meant to be a defining moment, a cataclysmic shift in our lives as we proclaim publicly that we have died with Christ, we've been buried with Christ, we've risen from death to life with Christ, we've been washed by Christ, and now we live a new life in Christ. It is such a great and powerful drama that identifies us with the Savior of the world when you're water baptized, and listen, the ones who are lost in this world are desperately longing to see it. You understand being baptized is the epitome of following Jesus Christ and leading others to Him as we choose to publicly identify ourselves with the Savior of the world. It's the ultimate testimony of who Christ is and what He's done in our lives. It's the culmination of His work in saving this world played out in such a dramatic fashion as we're buried in the water with Christ We're washed in the water with Christ and we're raised from the depths of the water with Christ into a new life with Christ. This is how you follow Jesus and lead others to Him. Now somebody tell me, why would anyone who believes in Jesus and claims to follow Him ever fathom not being baptized in water? What's the risk You might get a little embarrassed. Maybe. Will it make you feel awkward? Possibly. You'll definitely get wet. But listen, if you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, or if you want to be, which we can take care of in a moment, You've never been baptized in water, and I mean fully immersed in water, or maybe you were baptized as a baby, which means you didn't understand what was happening to you at the time. That's okay, but listen, how powerful would it be to line up as many people who have made that commitment to Christ, not only to be baptized, but who are willing to invite every human being that you can to that service, to listen to us give one testimony after another, after another, after another, about what God has done in our lives, and then to act out that saving work that Christ has done in your life right in front of them as you are buried in and raised from that water because there are people in your life, and you probably know who they are, who are following you. And so the question is, who are you following? Because whatever it is, that's where you're leading them. This is so important right now, because we're living in a moment in time where people are angry and afraid and fed up with what's going on in this world, and what they're looking for is something they can actually put their hope in. Do you understand this is an opportunity for you to lead them there? And all you have to do is invite them to come see you, or maybe a friend or a family member, get baptized. By the way, I know this from decades in church ministry. There are a lot of people who would normally never come to a church. They wouldn't step foot in a church, but if you tell them you're going to be baptized and you'd like for them to be there, they'll show up. That's a fact. There are so many people who will never darken the door of a church, but if you go to them, especially if it's a friend or family member, say, hey, I'm getting baptized and I want you to come, you'll be amazed at how many people will come. It's going to be a day of celebration. And I'm telling you that every single person who comes that day will hear the gospel clearly and plainly communicated. That's my promise to you. So all that's left now is for you to make a choice. A choice to come follow Jesus, literally to follow what he did himself, and then to lead someone else there with you. Because I'm guessing most of the people you know already know that you believe in Jesus. What I'm wondering is have they ever seen you following him? Let's pray.